So this morning, we'll be, uh, yeah, looking at Psalm 94 as we just uh, read it. You know, a, a cheerful psalm to end the series for the summer. Uh, it's a psalm that calls out for vengeance and justice to be enacted. A psalm where we see God's people have been dri- uh, driven to the brink of destruction uh, by those who oppress them. And now they call upon their God to bring forth justice for them. Throughout history, there's been uh, no greater sorrow than that of when evil seems to be winning the day. And our stories as a people uh, are full of heroes who come in to save the day. And no matter how large evil seems to loom, uh, we desire to see justice uh, being enacted. And so through this psalm, we'll see that God's people can cry out for justice because we have a God who protects his heritage and will repay the wicked for the deeds that they have done. So as the psalm begins, it begins immediately with a cry for help. We are placed uh, immediately onto the scene as the psalmist calls upon God to come and help. Jehovah, God of vengeance, a name that may sound uh, strange to us. How often have we called God a God of vengeance? It's something that may make you feel uncomfortable, makes me feel a little uncomfortable. Because for many of us, we see vengeance as uh, something personal. Someone has wronged me, and therefore I must now go and take my vengeance upon them. They've done something to insult my honor, to slight me, and now I need them to feel the same insult back. It's a human passion we see it as, subject to our emotions. And yet when the psalmist calls upon uh, God to rise up as a God of vengeance, we know, we can understand that God is not limited to our human passions. God is the all-seeing God. And verse 2 ties in his identity as the judge of the earth. It says, rise up, O judge of the earth. In Genesis 18.25, we see that uh, we're reminded that the judge of all the earth shall do right. And so we look to judges to be impartial. They look at the facts and the statements of a case, and they make their uh, decision based on that. And we hope that their emotions haven't swayed them. Uh, And so it is with God. He looks at the facts. He looks at what is just and right and true. And therefore, when he enacts his vengeance on the wicked, it is not as one subject to human emotion, but as one who measures according to the perfect standard. And so the psalmist calls upon God to repay the proud for what they have done. They must receive their due wages for their wickedness. In verse 3, we see, O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? And this repetition, it shows us the desperation with which the psalmist comes to God. How long will the wicked run around doing as they please? How long will they enforce their will on others without receiving their due judgment? It reminds us of the picture in Revelation 6.10, where the martyrs are also calling out to God, asking him how long it would be until he would rise up and avenge their deaths. And so we see that this, uh, this is a cry of all the righteous from the time of Abel until the time when our Lord shall return. When we see wickedness around us, we can cry out to God and we know that our voices are not alone. Throughout history, men and women have wrestled with the problem of evil, 
How long will it last? Why does there seem to be no relief from it? But we shall see that the Lord is not ignorant of what is happening on the earth. And so verses 4 through 7 show us the extent of their wickedness. In thought, in word, in deed, they sin. It says they pour out arrogant words unceasingly. It's a picture of their, you know, just vomiting out profanities with them. And not only do they speak these words, but they boast in them too. It's not just enough for them to speak of evil, but they are proud of it. How many times have we not seen people around us who, yeah, they, they, they know what they're doing is wrong, and they seem to boast in it. They seem to exult in knowing that they are doing wicked things. And so we see that these oppressors are crushing the people of God. And Psalmist says, you know, they, uh, they crush your people and they afflict your heritage. And he is appealing to the covenantal side of God here. It's his heritage. It's his inheritance. They are the ones who are being wiped away. Will not the Lord rise up to protect what is rightfully his? Will he allow evil to destroy the people that rightfully belong to him? It says they kill the widow and the sojourner. They murder the fatherless. It's an inversion of what God commanded in Exodus 22 when he says, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. So those who were the most helpless in the society were the ones who were being oppressed how many of you have ever visited another land where you were the foreigner, where you didn't know the customs, you didn't know your way around, and you depended on the mercy of the people there to help you get around? The Israelites were to show compassion to the foreigners because they at one point had been foreigners in another land. They were to show compassion to the widow and the orphan because these were people who were at the bottom of the society. They didn't have government assistance. They didn't have social security to help them out. In this time, you depended on your family to help you uh, survive. And so the widows had no husband to help bring in income. Orphans had no fathers to protect them. But the Lord said that he himself would rise up and protect these people. The sojourner, the widow, the orphan, he has a heart for them. And so we see the cruelty of these wicked men who are rising up and oppressing them and destroying them, going against God. And they see that they have prospered in their wickedness and have not received any pushback. Nobody's held them accountable. And so they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. These are dangerous words of self-deception. They've become so blinded in their arrogance that they feel as though they are outside of God's command. Now, how many of us have been in that place at one point or another where we feel like we can hide our sins from God or because we haven't faced the consequences of those sins yet? We think, oh, you know, God is surely turning a blind eye and I'm good to go with him. 
Hebrews 3.13 reminds us that we must warn each other every day while it is still today so that none of you will be deceived and hardened against God. Do not let your sin uh, blind you to the point where you think that you can successfully hide from the one who sees all. And so this is where the wicked men are at. They say God's ear is too dual to hear. His arm is too short to save. And so the psalmist turns uh, in verse 8 from lamenting what the wicked do to rebuking them for their folly. He calls them the dullest of people in verse 8. Their understanding and their knowledge is comparable to that of the beasts in the field. And so the psalmist is begging them to wake up from their dull thoughts. Fools, he calls them. When will you be wise? Proverbs reminds us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so it is with these men and women who do evil. Their wisdom will begin when they begin to understand that God is looking at their wickedness. When they understand that God is able to deal with their injustice. He is not hiding away. He's not distracted by other affairs. He's not turning a blind eye. No, he is taking account and he'll, he will deal with them all according to their wickedness. They think that God is far away, you know, up in heaven doing celestial things. But now the psalmist appeals to creation itself to show us that God is an intimate God. He is a God who is near to us. It says, he who plants through the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? And so the one who so carefully formed the human body, who formed the ear in a, such a shape that noise funnels in, he can hear. He can hear what the wicked say. And the one who formed uh, the eye with you know, the pupil and the iris, a vision that can catch the smallest of details, can the one who formed that not also see the affairs of man? And if God can discipline the nations as a whole for their sins, can he not also rebuke a single person? The psalmist points us to a God who isn't far off from his creation. He is intimate. He is near. He cares deeply about his people. He saw the sufferings of the Israelites in slavery. He heard the cry of Hagar as she wandered in the desert looking for water. He heard the prayers of his own son that he delighted in as he prayed from a garden. So the Lord our God is a God who is near to his people. He is not far off. He sees both the oppression of the righteous and the works done by evil men. He hears both the prayers of the righteous and the arrogant words that the wicked boast in. And beyond that, in, in verse 11, it says, the Lord knows the thoughts of the people, of men. So think about that. The Lord knows your thoughts. The Lord uh, knows what we are thinking. And there's a saying that uh, goes something along the lines of, if you could read 
what I am thinking. If you could, if you could hear what I'm thinking all the time, you wouldn't want to be my friend. You wouldn't ever trust me again. Because any single person in here can easily curate their deeds to portray the picture of someone who loves to help another. With enough self-control, they can control their tongue and their words and be seen as someone who is encouraging and uplifting to others. But in the thoughts of man, that's where darkness lies. That's where these wicked men are thinking up their evil deeds, where they're wondering what next thing can we do And so beyond the words that they boast in and the deeds that they do, the Lord can also see into the thoughts of man. And yet the psalmist says that their thoughts, our thoughts, they're but a breath. And what is a breath? It is nothing. We inhale, we exhale, and then it's gone. We think about that breath no longer. And such are the thoughts of men to God. Their wickedness lasts for a moment before it fades and is extinguished. Yet God's righteousness endures from generation to generation. Genesis 6 speaks of the the mighty men of old, men who did as they pleased, who forced their will on others. And yet, where are they now? Where are these mighty men? For all the might and power that they had, we don't even know their names. But God's name has persisted throughout the millennia. And so the psalmist is confident that though the righteous may be afflicted, God will deliver them. Evil will not endure forever. And so he turns his thoughts to meditate on God's relationship with his people. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. How many of us feel blessed when we're disciplined? How many of us, when we were children and our parents spanked us for doing something wrong, immediately said, thank you, parent, for spanking me? No, we ran away and we shook our little fists at them because we were angry. Or uh, as you grew older, privileges got taken away or you were grounded and you were upset. But Hebrews 12, 11 reminds us that for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We don't like discipline. We don't like people correcting us. And yet, when our parents did it, they did it hopefully out of love and correction, a desire to see us grow, to to learn what is good and to learn what is evil. And so the psalmist can also say that the man who is disciplined by the Lord is truly blessed. Why? Because they will have rest from the days of trouble. The one who is disciplined by God now will not have to endure the day of judgment later. And though the Lord sometimes seems as though he is inactive with evil, we can see he is busy digging a pit for the wicked. Their judgment will come when they fall into the pit. But for the righteous, for those who undergo the discipline of the Lord now, they will have rest from that day. It is better for us to go 
through the sorrows of this world and to feel God's loving staff shepherd us through it all than to prosper with all the wealth and fame and influence we could ever want and never feel the rod of discipline in this lifetime. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves. And though the wicked may seem to be prospering now, though they seem to be escaping all type of punishment, there will be a day when they are judged for their deeds, when their crimes will catch up to them. The Lord will not forsake his people. He will not leave them to wither away under evil hands. Justice will return to the righteous, and the upright in heart will follow it. And so as we start to get into the last part of the psalm, we see the author ask, Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against my evildoers? So the psalm narrows its focus on the author, on the individual. And when we see evil being done to us, we ask, who will deliver us? When things feel out of control, we want to know that there's someone who can fix our problems for us. And the psalmist feels powerless before the might of the wicked. And he asks for a, a champion to come and take up his cause. Who will fight? Who will rise up to fight for God's people? Who will stand against the evil of the time? And the answer comes quickly. If the Lord had not been my help. So we see it's God himself who rises up for us, who delivers us from evil. If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would have soon lived in the land of silence. If the Lord wasn't the one fighting for his people, we wouldn't be here today. If the Lord hadn't <clears throat> taken up arms against the forces of evildoers, we wouldn't be greeting each other and worshiping alongside each other. We would have perished along with all who seek righteousness. God fights for us in, in every way possible. <clears throat> and in verses 18 and 19, we go back to that intimacy of how God cares for us. So when I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. <clears throat> when the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. When we think that our foot is on the verge of slipping, it's that covenant love of God that holds us up. In our walk with the Lord, there will be many times that our foot seems to slip, times when it feels like we're just about to fall away. And when we're walking and we slip, instinctively we, we reach out to grab something to steady ourselves with. And that's who the Lord is for his people. When our foot seems to slip and we're losing our way in this life, it's the Lord's faithfulness that holds us up, that steadies us. It says, and when the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Who here hasn't had a sleepless night where the cares of their heart seem to be many? I can think myself of many nights where I've laid awake thinking about finances or what the future holds or broken relationships with people or even times I've embarrassed myself things that are out of our control and they seem to overwhelm us and drag us down with them. And yet, no matter how many the cares of our heart are, we have a God who cheers our soul. We have the God who understands and sympathizes and brings us joy in the morning. 
He is near and close to us in both the good and the bad. And as we heard a few weeks ago, we need not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day. And so the psalmist goes back to the wicked. And he asks, can those those who are wicked align themselves with God? Can those who do injustice be his allies? Because the wicked are coming together against the righteous and the innocent and putting them to death. And by this point, we should know it's it's a rhetorical question. Wickedness has nothing to do with God. There may be those who carry the name of God's people and they aim to do evil things, but they have no part in his heritage. They are not part of his people. And so the psalm ends in a note of rejoicing. The psalmist reiterates that the Lord has become his stronghold. It is God who is his shield and his fortress, his rock and his refuge. The ways of wickedness will come, but they can do nothing to him as long as he is hidden in the Lord. And so too can God's people trust in him as their stronghold in times of trouble. Evil may seem to prosper for a season, but ultimately will be destroyed. And verse 23 shows us how sins are repaid. There's uh, two ways. The first is that sin by itself just has natural consequences. If you lie or you steal uh, or you murder someone, uh, the consequences will play out. You'll lose the trust of people around you. You'll go to jail. Um, you know, it's he who lives by the sword shall die by the sword. The sin is repaid. The second way that sin gets repaid is that God himself intervenes and he will visit the iniquity of the people and will punish them for what they have done. And with the Lord who will wipe them out from memory. He has no part with the wicked. He is a judge who sees everything and who judges justly. And so all throughout this psalm, we have seen how the wicked behave. They exult in their sin. They boast in it. They afflict the oppressed. They do not think that God will punish them. He is far off. He cannot save his people. They set themselves against God's people. But we know that God is a God of justice. He is a judge of all the earth, and he will repay the wicked for what they have done. He will right every wrong ever committed. But these aren't just wrongs that seen on a massive scale. Yes, he will judge the Hitlers and the Stalins and the Neros of this world, but he will also bring justice to those who have dishonored the parents, those who have lied, who have stolen from their neighbor, who have lusted after what is not theirs. Because he is a judge who judges impartially, who is tied to objective truth of what is right and what is wrong, he must judge all wickedness. And this includes my wickedness and your wickedness. And you may say, I've never killed anybody, I've never stolen anything. But what about your gossip or your wandering eyes? Have you not sinned against your brother just as much by being envious of what he has? Have you not sinned against your sister just as much by sharing news that was only meant for your ears? All sin must be dealt with. Everyone will have to stand before the great judge one day to give account for their deeds. And if you are here today and you have not looked to Jesus for your salvation, let me tell you that there is no amount of money in the world that will get you a get-out-of-jail-free card. 
There's no amount of fame or influence that will allow you to bypass the judgment of the great judge. You may flee justice for a while, but sooner or later, it will catch up to you. And so I urge you to look to Jesus and to put your faith in him to save yourself from the coming day of judgment. The people of God know that one day all sin will be held accountable, including ours. But we are not the people who have fled from wrath. We have gone straight into the eye of the hurricane, straight into the depths of judgment with Jesus himself. Jesus took our sin and took the rightful wrath of God for our sins. And we are covered in him now. And so we pass through judgments like Noah passed through the waters in the ark. We can say, yes, God will judge all sin. But I have taken on the robes of righteousness that Jesus obtained for me. I am covered in his righteousness. My sin has been dealt with already. I can trust that God is my stronghold and my refuge, my mighty fortress in the day of judgment. And God's people can cry out to him for justice because the Lord will protect his heritage and repay the wicked. If you're here today and you've placed your trust in Jesus, you are part of that heritage. You are part of his people. Evil will flourish for a time, but we know that in the larger story, evil has already been dealt with. Evil people rise up with each generation, and in each generation, God's people cry out for help. We endure the evils of this world. We endure oppression and persecution, knowing that in this discipline, we are being molded into God's image. And in all of this, we can also point the world to the one who has risen up for us against the wicked, the one who stood against evildoers. Jesus took on the powers of evil and faced them headfirst. He declared that the kingdom of God was at hand, and for this he was put to death. But even at the cross, when wicked seemed to have won the day, when the only truly righteous and perfect man to have lived had fallen, we knew that God was at work in the bigger picture. Jesus didn't stay in the grave. He rose through the power of the Spirit. And as Colossians 2.15 reminds us, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus defeated all evil powers at the cross and in his resurrection. The Lord has not forsaken his people. Jesus reigns as king, and someday soon he will return for his people and extinguish all evil in this world. When we feel like the world is at its darkest point, we can remain secure knowing that Jesus has promised us that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, and ultimately every knee shall bow down to King Jesus. In the moments when all seems darkest, we can cry out to God and we know that he will hear us and deliver us. The Lord our God will fight for us against the forces of evil and we only need to be still.